0: All right, so my name is Mark Heffley. I'm the Director of Adult Faith Formation and Evangelization here at the parish. In case you haven't come to RCA before, you haven't seen me, uh, haven't met me yet. Um, Really excited to be here and glad to be back teaching again, Uh, but also a special warm welcome to all the fifth grade teachers. Uh, Tonight we're talking about uh, baptism and confirmation and your your children are preparing for confirmation. So my hope and prayer for tonight is that the fifth grade parents you feel excited uh, about uh, your your child getting confirmed and all you are say people getting confirmed or or baptized you you just get even more excited so
1: hopefully i don't ruin your excitement with my boring presentation there are
0: uh, many different angles that we could approach baptism and confirmation uh, what I wanted to do tonight is present kind of the big picture idea of confirmation and baptism. I'm going to clump them together because baptism, confirmation is really just the completion of baptism. It deepens and strengthens the graces that you get in baptism. So it's kind of like we can talk about them at the same time. Uh, so if I talk about baptism and you're here just for confirmation, uh, you don't have to feel like I'm wasting your time. Because uh, uh, everything about baptism applies to confirmation too. Well, at least the big picture stuff. So we're going to focus in the first part on the big picture, kind of the storyline of scripture and how uh, baptism and confirmation fit into that. And then we'll take a break. And then after the break, uh, we'll get into some of the nitty uh specifics about the two sacraments. You guys ready?
1: All right. Love it. All right, let's start with the prayer.
0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy
1: Spirit, fill our hearts. Fill us with your love and your joy and your peace. We entrust to you this class. May your spirit be present to enlighten our minds to better understand your truth, and especially the truth about our baptism and confirmation, and inflame
0: our hearts with greater love and joy. And we entrust. These intentions and all of our intentions our Mother Mary. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Now among women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, here we go. Uh this, in case you haven't come before, this is a QR code for the anonymous questions. If you want to ask an anonymous question, you can just scan that. It's also on the handout, uh, the outline for tonight. You can just scan it, type in your question. And then at the break, I'll look at the anonymous questions, and then we can answer them um, if you have any. You can also just raise your hand at any time, ask a question that way, or add your own two cents and your Deep Insights. So the big... The big picture, I, I'm just gonna walk through your favorite books of the Bible, which are Genesis, Exodus, and your favorite one of all time, which is Leviticus. And then show how those three books really set the stage for what Jesus does and what Jesus does specifically about baptism. And I my hope is that your mind will be blown at the beauty of all that God does. Three things I want to focus on about this big picture is covenant. God's covenant relationship with us and all of creation, uh, the idea of a, the temple and what the temple is supposed to do or be about, and then lastly, uh, new creation. All right, here we go. So first, we begin with Genesis. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can you can open them up. Uh, those of you who don't, you probably have it memorized, right? So you can just flip to that part of your your memory. So Genesis one, the very opening lines of Scripture. Now, uh, when, when I taught the first time on the, the class on revelation and faith and reason, talked talked about the, the appropriate way to approach scripture. So we always have to keep in mind that God wrote scripture, yes, but God wrote scripture through real human beings. And so since he wrote through real human beings to get at the message that God wants to communi- communicate through scripture, we have to keep in mind what the original author was trying to communicate. And the original author could use use imagery poetry uh appeal to different customs and and things that in the culture at the time that everybody would have understood but us in the 21st century we we have a tougher time so because of that uh when we approach genesis one we often uh raise uh i guess inappropriate questions about like the scientific accuracy of Genesis. Um, when this was written, like nobody cared about the scientific accounts of creation because there was famine, there was death, there was war. People cared about the meaning of creation and the meaning of of life, and so that's what I think Genesis is is getting at here. <clears throat> so, reading Genesis one and two with Kind of uh, with the the original authors in mind, the original authors being ancient Jews, some things start popping off the page. So one thing you see, I'm just going to note this. So the first line, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We won't talk about this much now, but it'll come up a lot later. So for the Jewish mind, water and the deep were associated with death and chaos and destruction.
1: So just just store that for a minute.
0: Then we see
1: God creates, how many days does he create? Six. Six days of creation. But then the seventh day, he rests. Uh, so that's at the beginning of chapter
0: two. God rested on the seventh day. All right, seven. Seven uh, pops out at the at the end. It also pops out throughout the first chapter. In the original Hebrew, not in the English translation, uh, the first sentence of Genesis is seven words long. The whole chapter of Genesis is seven paragraphs with seven days throughout those paragraphs. It was good. The line it was good occurs seven times. The seventh paragraph has three sentences. Each sentence has seven words in it. And includes talk about the seventh day. So 777 it just pops off the page over and over. Why seven? The word for seven is shibit. In Hebrew, the word for Sabbath is Shabbat. Uh, they're very similar. Seven, it, for the Jewish mind, means the same thing as covenant. It's a, it's a symbolic way to reference the covenant. To swear a covenant oath is literally to seven yourself. So what, what's a covenant? A covenant, a clear example is marriage. It's when two swear an oath, and by swearing that oath, you become family. So marriage is a clear example, but there's other, exa- other examples of covenants in the ancient world. Warring tribes might swear covenants uh, with each other to stop killing each other. So God, throughout the story of Scripture, makes covenants with his people. Uh, what that means is people are invited into God's family. He swears an oath. Usually the, other, the people involved swear an oath too, and by swearing that oath, they form a covenant, they become family. So what is what is Genesis 1 saying with all of these references to seven throughout? Creation is made to be in covenant relationship with God, particularly man. Man who's the only creature invited to participate in the seventh day, in God's Sabbath rest, the seventh day. So we especially are invited into covenant relationship with God. All right. So that's the first thing we see about Genesis 1 and 2 is the idea of covenant. <clears throat> Second thing you see is a uh, temple, temple stuff. Uh, this begins in, in Genesis 2. So in Genesis 2, we have a, a separate creation account, a little bit different than the first chapter of Genesis. And in this creation account, it kind of zooms in on man. And it talks about God creating Eden. And then in the midst of the land of Eden, God creates a garden. And then he places Adam in the garden. You, you know how the story goes. Some other things we see about uh, Eden in the garden is there's four rivers that flow out of Eden, which means Eden is a mountain because rivers flow out of it. Uh, This is taken up later in Ezekiel, where Eden is described as a mountain. Mountains are important because God always establishes covenants with people
1: on mountains. Oh, so it's on a mountain. There's four rivers.
0: Uh, after Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, what does God place there to keep them from going back in? Two cherubim with flaming swords. You guys remember the story? Then, uh, so the garden is in uh, presumably the middle of Eden. We don't we don't know, but Eden's kind of like the broader territory. And then we have a third section called the land beyond Eden. So when Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden, they they don't leave Eden. They go down, but not out of Eden. And then when Cain kills Abel, he leaves Eden and he goes east, east of Eden. All right. So why is this important? This, oh, 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 hold on, hold on, getting ahead of myself. So it's described as a mountain, three divisions. Making sure I'm not skipping stuff. The cherubim. Oh, uh, next, the way God is described as being present uh, in the garden is he He walks in the garden. All right. Keep that in mind. Uh, Adam and Eve, they're given uh, two things to do, to guard and to keep. Uh, avad and Shamar is the, the Hebrew. All right. That's it. That's it for now. So why why is this important? Uh, The garden is described as the temple uh, or the tabernacle. So I'm going to use those interchangeably. The the tabernacle, when when the Israelites leave Egypt and they're going through the desert, God gives them instructions on how to build the tabernacle, which is basically a portable uh, temple. So the the tabernacle is this, um, just this tent structure. And God promised to be present with his people in a special way through the tabernacle. Now... The Garden of Eden is the tabernacle. The temple is nothing. uh, The temple comes later after they wander through the desert. Then they get in the land, and then later on, King David has a son Solomon, and Solomon builds the temple. The temple just becomes a permanent tabernacle. Same structure, pretty much looks the same thing. Looks like the same thing, except it's made out of stone instead of tents. So like eden and the garden and the land beyond there's three sections to the tabernacle structure you have uh the the like the the general the outer courts here where you have a wash basin and 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 an altar then you have the holy place which would correspond to eden and then in the holy place this is just the holy place itself you go in and there's a menorah. It's a candlestick that looks like a tree. Then you have the bread of the presence, which we'll come back to you later, and then the altar of incense. And then you have a, a veil, and guess what's on the veil? Two cherubim. Then you pass through the veil, and this is the unique place where God dwells. The Ark of the Covenant's in there, and on top of the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat, where there's two cherubim facing each other. And God promised that it would be on the mercy seat that God would make himself known. So you can store that away. All right, so that's the structure. Some other things, uh, God promised to be present in the tabernacle by walking in it. Ah, And the duties of the priest are to Avad and Shamar, the exact same duties given to Adam and Eve. Oh, and Adam and Eve were naked and they needed to be covered. The only other people described as needing to cover their nakedness are? You guessed it, the priests. The priests had to cover their nakedness with the vestments. So what does all this mean? The big drama of scripture is the drama of getting back into the garden. Being in covenant relationship with God and being in God's presence. That's the whole goal, the whole storyline of Scripture. So that's the goal. Man is originally made to be in relationship with God. But man keeps leaving and keeps leaving. Uh, Scripture uses this poetically, going east, out of Eden. The tabernacle structure is set up the same way. To, To go out of the tabernacle structure, you go east out of the tabernacle
1: so the goal
0: is to get man to go west back into the tabernacle and back into the holy of holies or the garden of eden
1: pretty cool huh Woo! you guys are excited on the inside um Oh, so
0: you might be wondering which came first. So maybe this is a digression, but I'm a nerd, so I'm going to take it. So the Garden of Eden story takes place before in the in the order of Scripture, but historically, the Exodus took place first. The people who wrote Genesis were later Jews who were writing after the Exodus. So when that author sat down to write his account of creation, that author is taking images of from what they're familiar with. And what are they familiar with? The tabernacle and the temple. That's what they're familiar with. And so through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they use that imagery to depict what life was like in that past, whatever that past looked like.
1: Actually, I just think that's so cool.
0: So cool. So, so the Earth is made like a tabernacle. The tabernacle structure itself is just like a microcosm of, of, you know, God's big plan for all of creation. All right. Then moving on. Oh, just to show you, in case you're curious, this is the temple later that's built by David's son. So you have the 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 big structure like the outer courts of the. The tabernacle then you have the holy place just like you did in the tabernacle and then inside the holy place you have the holy of holies and there's a veil and it's that veil most likely that was torn when jesus died on the cross cool all right so adam and eve sin and they i already gave it away they go east so now they are out of the holy of holies and they can't go back in not yet God's going to devise a plan to get man back in the Holy of Holies, but that's not that's not yet. Then uh, they have sons, you know the story, Cain kills Abel, and then Cain has to go east. and then I'm cutting I'm jumping over some stuff. After Cain kills Abel and he heads East, things just go go south real fast, and they go so bad that God has to undo creation. So if you compare the account of the flood with the account of creation, it's just going in reverse. So in the account of creation, you have the waters. It's just the waters associated with death and destruction and chaos. And that God separates the waters and then dry land appears. Uh, The account of the flood is basically God unseparates the waters and lets everything go back to chaos and destruction. Except he saves uh, Noah and his family and the animals on this ark. And it's like a recreation. Same thing that happened in the first creation account. You have the waters and just the waters, and then the spirit is hovering over the waters in Genesis one. Well, with the flood, after they're they're, you know, sailing around on the flood waters for a while, then God blows His spirit, His ruach, over the waters, and then they eventually they recede. And where does Noah land? on a mountain why a mountain because it's symbolic for a covenant man is back in covenant relationship with god but that doesn't last very long because uh noah goes down the mountain he plants a vineyard gets drunk and then some weird things happen with his son and it just goes downhill from there and then they keep going east and east and east until they get to the tower
1: of babel which is Babylon. Uh, The tower would be a ziggurat that the
0: ancient Babylonians would build so that they could ascend to the heavens. So they go east. Babylon is associated with exile and death for the Israelites. So this is the state of humanity at this point.
1: What is God going to do?
0: I know you're asking. Well, he picks a guy named Abraham. Well, Abram first, he gets his name changed later. Where's Abram from? Ur. He's from Ur of the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans of the Babylonians. So God comes to Abram and says, hey,
1: I want you to head west. Whoa. Head west to the to
0: the land that God gives them. Why? So it's all, I mean, it's. Not to deny the historicity of this, but it's also symbolic. Heading west is heading back into the garden, back into God's presence. Uh, lot, I'm skipping over lots of stuff. So Abraham goes there. Then he has some kids. Those kids have kids. And then you, you've heard the 12 tribes of Israel. So these are the... Wait, so Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob has the 12. Uh the other 11 or, well, at least 10 of them are pretty rotten. And then they sell Joseph into slavery into Egypt. Egypt is also associated with exile and death. Anyway, he's out of the land. So he's, he's pretty much given up for, for dead. But it's really cool. This is a little preview of what Jesus is going to do. Even though he's sent to death in Egypt, it's because he's there that he can bring God's blessings to all the nations by saving them from starvation. So it's kind of a foretaste. I forgot to say, when God appeared to to Abram and and called him to to make this journey, he made a covenant with Abram. And he also, and with that covenant, he made some promises. He promised him land, the promised land, and he promised him descendants, and he promised him that the world, all the nations, would be blessed through Abraham's family. That's an important detail I forgot to mention. So all the nations would be blessed through Abraham's family. So this is God's first step to fix what Adam and Eve ruined, to gather humanity back and bring them into the Holy of Holies. All right. Now they go, they're in Egypt and then Joseph and while the other brothers come down there and then they have kids and their kids have kids. Lots of years go by and the Israelites become really large, a large people. And they get enslaved, and um, the the Pharaoh is afraid of them, uh, you know, attacking uprising. So he orders all the uh, little boys to be killed. Moses would have been killed, but he's saved by being placed in water. He's saved through water. And by being placed in the water, he's taken out of the water into freedom and security. Same thing happens to all the Israelites when Moses leads the Israelites to this, the Red Sea. And then guess what happens? God's Ruha, his, his spirit blows over the waters of the Red Sea and makes dry land appear. Does that sound familiar? Creation again, but now it's the Israelite people being like recreated as they're set free from slavery to Egypt. So they're brought through the Red Sea, saved through water,
1: whereas the water destroys the Egyptians. And then they're brought to a mountain,
0: a mountain, go figure, another mountain, where God can make a covenant. So Moses goes up uh, the mountain, Mount Sinai, and God makes a covenant with him and with the people, and um, God has Moses do this thing where he sprinkles blood on the people. What that signifies is that if they break the covenant, then they, then they die, too. So it comes with grave obligations. But by making this covenant, this nation has become a nation of priests. Priests are those who extend God's blessings to, to other people. It's basically in fulfillment of, of God's promise to Abraham. By making them a kingdom of priests, they can they can
1: extend God's blessings to all the nations, um, and they're gonna they're gonna be in God's presence. Now, Mount Sinai is where Moses receives
0: the plans for the tabernacle, and uh, Mount Sinai—am I going out of order here? Mount Sinai also corresponds to the tabernacle. Um, so Mount Sinai, you can divide it up into three sections d- based on where the people could go. So the general masses could only go to the base of the mountain. That's like the outer courts of the tabernacle. The, the elders and Aaron and his sons could go halfway up the mountain. That's like going into the holy place. And then only Moses could go to the, to the top. And that's like only the high priest could go into the holy of holies and just as god descended in a cloud of smoke on the top of mount sinai the priest will burn incense at the altar of incense and then bring that incense into the holy of holies to fill the holy of holies with smoke so that he can't see god because god dwells in the holy of holies. so what's important to note here is that uh mount sinai is to be extended and like, recreated, so to speak, through the
1: sacramental, symbolic liturgy of the tabernacle. Moses could experience
0: God on Mount Sinai. All of Israel could experience God through the symbols and liturgy of the tabernacle. So in a very real way, though still symbolic, God was present to Israel through the tabernacle
1: but through, through sacramental signs. All right. Now, while, while
0: Moses is receiving the plans for the tabernacle, the people mess up, they worship the golden calf. And this causes some problems. God, God tells Moses, he, he should just destroy all the people. But then Moses, what does he say? Says, no destroy me instead so he he sets himself up as uh, uh, kind of a, a sacrifice in place of the people, but God doesn't take his life. But he does hold them accountable for what kind of holds them accountable for the sins of the people. So after Moses comes down off of Mount Sinai and they, they redo the covenant, they reestablish the covenant, they build the tabernacle. God's presence comes down on the tabernacle. The Shekinah, the cloud of glory that was on Mount Sinai, descends to the holy place. So God is present there. Moses is about to go in. And at the very end of Exodus, Moses is blocked from going in. He can't go in because he he's taken on the guilt of, of the people. The people are unclean. They've been exiled. They can't go into God's presence. Now, this raises the big issue. God's plan was to bring all all of creation into the Holy of Holies, all, all nations into the Holy of Holies. And it's been going well, kind of, until the golden calf. And now it seems like not even Moses can go into the Holy of Holies. This is where your favorite book comes in. Leviticus. Leviticus is all about how to get into the Holy of Holies. And it's the most important book of the Pentateuch because it forms the exact, it's the the middle of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible. Uh, so there's kind of this chiastic structure where uh, it everything leads up to Leviticus and then leads away from Leviticus to show that it's in the middle. Uh, it's, it's also uh, ordered by time. Like most of Exodus is ordered by weeks. And then you get to days and then no time in Leviticus and then you're back to days and weeks. So it's just a clever way to, that the ancients would show Leviticus is important. So what is Leviticus all about? Leviticus is about how to enter into God's presence and the middle of Leviticus chapter 16 is about how to cleanse the sin from the tabernacle so that the people can go in.
1: Oh, this is the issue.
0: This is what we need, right? Moses can't go in. We need chapter 16. Well, what happens in chapter 16? I know you know this already, but it's the day of atonement. The day of atonement, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with blood, sprinkle the blood around the Holy of Holies on behalf of himself and behalf of the people. And by making that sacrifice, the sin would be purged from the tabernacle and purged from the people. And then they could dwell in God's
1: presence again. Oh, this is this is cool stuff. All right. Um, then skimming over this real quick, then we'll get to Jesus and then we'll take a break.
0: You guys are doing great, bearing with me. So they go back into the desert after the tabernacle is constructed. They wander around a bit. Then later on, they build the kingdom and they build the ta- the temple. But there, there's an issue with the Leviticus 16 and the tabernacle so this works up into a point so if if israel just keeps sinning sin is almost depicted like a weight oh i almost forgot oh okay let me explain this one thing really quick another part of day of atonement is the scapegoat so a couple animals would be sacrificed and their blood would be scattered around but then one of the goats Uh, would become the scapegoat, and the high priest would lay hands on the goat, press him down, and then confess the sins of the nation on the scapegoat. And then they would lead the goat out of the camp. In what direction? East, out of the camp into the wilderness, uh, because their sin is like a weight that they're placing on the goat to carry the weight. Okay, so the blood and the goat, it works for the Israelites to a certain extent, but if they sin so much, the weight becomes too unbearable. That they they got to just be exiled. They can't cleanse the temple. They just got to leave. So this is exactly what happens to the Israelites. They get exiled. They can't even be near the temple, much less cleanse it. They have to be kicked out. And where do they go? They go east to Babylon. Babylon, the land of exile. Then they're set free. They're brought back. They rebuild the temple. This is the Book of Ezra. Uh, they rebuild the temple. But God doesn't return. The Shekinah, God's glory, that descended the cloud of glory, that descended on the the original tabernacle and then descended on the original temple when it was built to show that God was present, it goes away uh, around the time of the exile. And when they rebuild the temple, God's glory does
1: not come back. And they thought, So at this time, they're thinking, oh, we've come back from exile. This is
0: great. But then as time goes on, they realize we're not back from exile. So we're back in the land, but we're not out of exile. And they start realizing that it's not enough to just be physically in the land to to be in God's presence, even physically near the temple to be God's presence. Something has to happen with our hearts. Our hearts are in exile and in death. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel will use the image of dry bones, the valley of dry bones. He looks at all of Israel, and they're like dead bones. Um, even though, you know, say even though Israel is back from exile, they're they're pretty much dead. So the prophets are talking about a new, ex, a new exodus. They're waiting for a new exodus, set free from slavery to sin and death, a much deeper exile to be set free from that, to be brought into God's presence. So now this this is what people are waiting for. So man
1: has to be brought back into the Holy of Holies, back into the Garden of Eden. How is this going to happen? You already know the answer. It's with Jesus. But I love how John shows this. So if you you have your Bibles and you want to turn to the book of John, So John begins his gospel. Are you guys doing all right? Am I too confusing? Not not explaining things well. Good. Okay. I'm really just fishing for a compliment. You're doing. Thanks. Thanks. All right. Oh. Good. <laughs> all right. So in John, John one, oh, this is beautiful how
0: he begins. So he begins with another creation account. So Genesis one isn't the only creation account in scripture. There's another creation account in the Psalms and in Proverbs and in wisdom, again in John and Colossians. Uh, uh, yeah. So it's all, over, and that's another topic. So in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So, new creation account, the word is distinct from God, but is somehow equal with God. But then we jump down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The Greek word there is tabernacled tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory the Shekinah the Shekinah that didn't return to the temple oh all right so we got the new the new tabernacle tracking yeah God's glory in the new tabernacle all right chapter two uh we're skimming here Uh, After the wedding feast of Canaan, Jesus goes into the temple and they're doing all kinds of corrupt things in the temple. So he starts flipping tables and whipping people or at least chasing him. We don't know if he actually hit anybody with them. And then uh, some of the Jews question him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And then the Jew said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. I'm talking about the new additions after Herod came. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his his body. Ah, all right. So Jesus is the the new tabernacle and he's the new temple. Now through the rest of the gospel, uh, John is going to take us on a tour through through the, the new temple. So Leviticus, Leviticus is beautiful. You can think about this next time you're trying to trudge your way through it. Leviticus was a way for everyone to take a tour through the the Holy of Holies, through the, the tabernacle and enter into God's presence through the text of scripture. So keep in mind, only the Holy, only the Holy, only the High Priest once a year could go into the Holy of Holies within the tabernacle. Besides that, the priest could go around the holy place and in the outer precincts, but not just your everyday Joe Schmoe or myself could go into the Holy of Holies, but you read Leviticus and you're taken on a tour and through this in- inspired word, you are, you are brought into the presence of God. Isn't that neat? So John does the same thing with us through the new
1: temple. All right, next place to go is, is chapter six. Uh, let me take us back to... Okay. Chapter six, Jesus says something interesting. He says,
0: I am the bread of life. In verse 35, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. And this is in the context of talking about the Exodus and, and God providing the manna and all this. This is the bread of the presence. So within the holy place in the tabernacle, the priest would set out 12 loaves of bread, uh, which would symbolize on one hand Israel. The menorah would be God's light shining on the nation of Israel. But on the other hand, it's called the bread of the presence. It's blessed. And in some mysterious way, God, God makes himself present, at least associated with that bread in an intimate way, so that only the only the priest could eat it. So it's not just your ordinary bread anymore. So So John 6, where we're in the holy place, we see the the bread of the presence. Then we see in chapter 7, Jesus is is talking during the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a feast celebrating the exodus and the time when the Israelites spent time in, in booths in the desert. And it was the main feast of the temple. Now during this feast, uh the priests would set up this giant lampstand in the temple lit so this giant fire and then they would fill two bowls with holes in them one bowl they would put wine in it the other bowl they would put water in it and then there are holes in the bowl so that the water and the wine would flow out of the temple east i'm pretty sure and it's I think it's Ezekiel had a vision of the temple and water, like the rivers of Eden flowing out of it, bringing God's blessing and life to all the land and all the nations around him. So they would enact this with the the water and the
1: wine. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, this is chapter 7,
0: 37. Oh, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is on the last day of the Feast of Booths, when all the water is coming out of the temple. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Oh, like the temple out of which the, the rivers of living water flow, but whose heart? It's a little unclear whether his heart refers to Jesus's heart or the believer's heart it it can be both. So Jesus preeminently, because he's the temple, the rivers of living water are going to flow from him, but also all the believers are joined to him. So rivers of living water are going to flow from us too. But so he's the temple living water flowing from it. And then during the same feast in chapter eight, he says in verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's saying this during the great feast when there's probably that giant lampstand lit. And I imagine it's dark, because that would just be an epic time to make a statement like this. Uh, But a time, it also calls to mind the, the menorah, which symbolized the cloud of the pillar of fire, which went with the Israelites as they're wandering through the desert. And Jesus basically says, I am that pillar of fire guiding you through your lives. So we're we're taking a tour. We see the bread of the presence. We see the menorah. And then chapter 17, Jesus makes his prayer, his priestly prayer, like the priest would before he makes the sacrifice. Then we skip to his
1: crucifixion.
0: And there's something interesting about his clothes that we don't hear about until after he's crucified. This is in chapter 19, uh, verse 23 says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Huh. That's what the high priest would wear. The high priest would wear a seamless tunic when he goes into the Holy of Holies. What is going on? All right. So Jesus has made his high priestly prayer before he offers the sacrifice. He makes it he makes it clear he's laying down his life. So he's offering the sacrifice It's not being taken from him. Then we would expect to, to go into the Holy of Holies. Where is the Holy of Holies? It's Jesus on the cross. See the description? Uh, go to verse 17 of chapter 19. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others,
1: one on either side and Jesus between them. The cherubim, who stand on the side of the mercy seat. So
0: Jesus is in the position of the mercy seat from which God said he would make himself known to his people. Jesus said the exact same thing when he said, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. I am is the divine name that God revealed to Moses. When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will see that I am. It's from the cross that God makes himself known to his people, from the mercy seat surrounded by the two cherubim. So John's gospel takes us through a tour of the new temple, the new tabernacle, to the pinnacle of it, uh, which is the, the mercy seat where on the Day of Atonement, well, this isn't the Day of Atonement, this is Passover, but Jesus is doing the actions of the Day of Atonement, the high priest going in, shedding blood, in the holy of holies, and the blood shed in the holy of holies, it cleansed the sin of the temple within the tabernacle, within the temple. And what's the temple?
1: All of creation. Isn't that beautiful. All
0: right. So that's that's the temple, the tabernacle stuff. Now, how and like why in the world? What what does this have to do with baptism and
1: confirmation?
0: How about we take a little break, let you ponder it, and then we'll come back and talk about that and finish it.
1: If you if you
0: have any questions, uh, the anonymous question Q code QR code is on the page, you can scan it.